Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August through the 7th, 2014, and it's a Thursday. I, I thought it was Wednesday. Um, the week is just flying by, and time tends to move quickly when you're having fun, and if you're not having fun, you're not living life the right way. Remember that. This is the survival show that speaks of living life in a positive way, speaks of living a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. That's what we're all about here. No doom and gloom if you're a first-time listener. If I sound like I'm in a good mood, it's because I want to talk about something that I like today, which is growing food. I'm going to talk about fall gardening. Fall gardening? Are you nuts? Yeah, fall gardening. It's time to start looking forward to it and start planning for it and start getting stuff going for it. Some of you quicker than others, depending on where you live. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor the day number one today, JM Bullion. Hey, in an uncertain world, it makes sense to insure your assets, right? And the one way, one of the many ways that I do that is through silver and gold. Now, I'm not the guy that says, the dollar is going to crash tomorrow. Change all your money into silver and gold because that's stupid. And the people telling you that want your money in exchange for their silver and gold. And they want green while they sell you silver and gold. That is dumb. Silver and gold, in my view, should make up 5% to 10% of your net wealth. That includes things like the equity in your home, your actual total wealth. I think that's a very sensible hedge against inflation, and I don't think you should run out, though, tomorrow and just take 5% of your net wealth and just dump it into silver and gold. You haven't been doing it all yet. I think you do it slowly over time. You dollar-cost average your purchases. When the market drops, that's when you buy. That's smart buying. That's not trading. And I think you should deal with a reputable dealer and pay the best price you can. That's why I recommend JM Bullion. At this point in time, in all my years of buying silver and gold, if I'm buying silver and gold on the Internet, there's only two ways I'm doing it. I'm buying junk silver on eBay once in a while from a reputable seller there when I can get a good deal on it. And But for all my bullion, I'm going to JM. Why? Hey, i got a company with better pricing than Monix and Atmex, stellar reputation, and if I or one of my listeners has an issue, firing off an email to Michael, who's the president of the company, and I get personal service from the president. You know, When I talked to Monix and Abmax about becoming sponsors, no one there wanted to talk to me. They were like, if you want to do something, maybe we can do something, uh, but uh, send it to our marketing department. Okay, you guys are out. Jam's in. Jam's my choice. This should be your choice, too. Next, though, today, Western Botanicals. Another thing to ensure is your health. And one of the ways I do that is whenever I have something wrong in my life, if I have an ache or a pain or a little bit of congestion or an illness, I always try to turn to something gentle like an herb before I do a toxin, which is what drugs are. And that doesn't mean there's no place for drugs. There's drug, drugs that have saved more lives than you will ever be able to count in your lifetime. And I am grateful that they're when they're necessary. But they are not my first choice. They are what I use when there's nothing else available. When it comes to herbs, Western Botanicals is my choice. They should be your choice, too. They are a huge supporter of the MSB, by the way. They have a program for, that they sell every day for 50 bucks a year. It's called the Preferred Membership. 
All TSP listeners can buy it for $25. MSB members get it for free for the first year. That pays for your whole membership. And then you get 25% off everything they sell. And if you use a lot of herbals like I do, that savings really adds up. Great supporter of the show. Long-term sponsor. Real people that really care about you. If you need some help, pick the phone up, call Western Botanicals, and they'll help you out. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Remember, if it's herbal and it's legal, they've got it. And I mean everything you can think of. It's there. It's organically grown or wild-crafted, top quality, and um, again, the inventory is unbelievable. Next up today, I want to remind you about the Member Support Brigade. You'll get discounts from Western Botanicals, JM Bullion, many of our other sponsors, and uh, a lot of other companies. Everything from the practical to the tactical, from gardens to guns and everything in between. If you're working on your personal preparedness in your own life, your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance, and you're buying stuff for it, my membership of $50 a year will more than pay for itself. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, how fast was that? You can get a discount if you email me when, before, not after you join. Do that, put service discount on the subject line, one or two sentences about your service. Again, this is for active duty or prior service in any of those things. I will give you a discount. Prior service, not just retired, prior service. If you were a reserve deputy officer for two years in Arkansas, you send me an email about that, I'll send you the service discount to thank you for your service. Again, if you email me before, not after you join the MSB. With that, let's get into the year that was the episode, the year... 1403. Today I'm going to tell you what the bottom of the barrel really means and where it comes from. There's three segments today. Tax is the bottom of the barrel. Korean typecasting. And Henry Hotspur gets one in the head. I'm going to read the bottom of the barrel. You want to read the other ones, get over to tspwiki.com. Look at the history segment for 1403. Remember, TSP Wiki is the survival and sustainability wiki. A encyclopedia of knowledge on all things modern survival and sustainability, where you cannot be just a student but a teacher because you could be a contributor. But Alex Shrugged is probably our top contributor because he does one every day for us to cover the episode history segment. Today, 1403, the German Merchant Guild or Haseatik. Haseatik. He's got it phonetically spelled out for me because he knows I'll never pronounce that right. The Haseatik began as a union of merchants formed in the mutual defense for German shipping and consistent commerce laws. The league expanded to include non-German regions that saw benefit from the German commercial rules, but the Danes felt they were being crowded out and went to war with them in 1360. Uh, I think the Danes got their ass handed to them in that war, by the way. I'm not sure if I remember that right. Anyway, now the league has won control over the herring market, and it's imposing excellent quality control and importing better and cheaper salt from Portugal. In time, the Hasseotic League will control something like 40,000 ships and command over 300,000 men. Gee, that sounds like a Navy to me. Anyway, my take by Alex Shrug. Poor quality control over the packaging of herring and barrels caused problems in the past. Often the salt brine was cut with ash to save money, but it reduced the salt's preservative quality so that the herring rotted. The rotten fish would be repacked at the bottom of the barrel. Good herring would be packed on top. The Hoseotic League put a stop to this practice, burned any rotten herring, and used cheaper salt from Portugal. Portuguese salt was cheaper because of their lower tax structure. The league used the savings to pay for the, for the shipping, improve the quality, and the end product. 
proof that I guess a union-type organization, if it focuses on quality and cost savings rather than lots of benefits and uh, perfect working conditions where people are paid to sit on their ass, could actually make a positive impact. Sounds more like a guild than a union to me. Anyway, I want to point a couple things out. Number one, now you know where the term comes from, the bottom of the barrel, all the way back to 1403. Number two, why did they choose the excellent quality sea salt from Portugal? It was taxed lower. If you want an economy to boom, cut the shit out of taxes. That's how it works. There's no mystery to it. Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Again, the fall garden. This is what I wrote at the beginning of today's show notes from a random made-up listener. I have it in quotes. Uh, what I thought some of you might feel when you heard we were going to talk about fall gardening on August 7th. Fall garden? What the heck, Jack? Do you not see your own weather forecast? Hello, Earth to Jack. It's going to be 103 degrees in your town today. The next five days will have highs of 104, 101, 101, 100, and 100. Are you daft? This is the time to be planning for a fall garden. Uh, so I had an argument with myself. I made up an adversary. This is how I responded to it. Well, indeed, yes, it is. Consider that your spring garden planning begins when frost and snow are still on the ground, does it not? Yes, it's 103 today, but our average first frost date is November 17th. There are two things to consider around this first frost date. The first is that I currently have about 102 days on average before our first frost. Hence, anything that will frost kill and requires more than 102 days to produce is out of the question for a second crop right now. So, I must choose any frost-sensitive crops carefully for my second season. I also need to start most seeds in flats or pots in shaded and climate-controlled areas right now. Germination is poor to say the least in 100-plus degree temperatures. The second is with frost-hardy crops like carrots, peas, lettuce, etc. While they're frost-hardy, one must get them established by the frost date if they are going to continue to grow and thrive in cold and short days. So that's why we're talking about this now. This is like planning for your spring garden in like the end of January, beginning of February. It's the same thing. I think that we struggle with this as beings because we can understand I must protect the plant when it is freezing outside. I can look outside and I see snow, and I know if I put a tomato out there, it will die. So I know I must protect it. I also know that I have a limited growing season, and if I want to be eating early in the growing season, or for people with shorter growing seasons, like I have 102 days right now till my first frost date. There's Some of you guys out there don't have a 102-day growing season, right? So if I'm in that position, I've got to get this plant up and stocky and ready to go and in the ground as early as possible when it will still survive. I might have to put a little protection around it in a really short growing season or to get it, even if it would survive, to get it really going good if it's got cool, cool days and get it established so that when the main part of spring and early summer comes, that plant grows and produces for me. So then I'm sitting here in the middle of summer going, why the hell should I be starting plants now? Well, because the other frost date is important. The other frost date is the first frost date. Again, mine's generally November 17th-ish. Remember your first and last frost date averages? That's nice. Yeah, yeah. don't bet on it. It's usually two weeks earlier or two weeks later, uh, one or the other on either side of it, and both of those things can mess you up. So you got to plan with some redundancies built in there and some plans for protection built in there. But just like we have to get things ready 
for spring, we need to get things ready for fall if we're going to have a second or a third rotation crop. So I want to start out with a couple resources that I recommend for you in that planning. The first one is the Farmer's Almanac, and you can go there, and there's a first and last frost date page. You stick in your town, in your state, and you hit bing, and it usually it will kind of sort of know where you're from. So when you click it, it'll tell you. Don't be freaked out by that. It's based on your ISP. But it may not be exactly where you are. For instance, mine said, you're in Fort Worth. Well, that's because I have a Fort Worth address, but that's not really why. It's because that's where my ISP is. Got their point of presence. I am actually near Azel. And does it make a difference? Yeah, it really does. It makes a difference. Uh, I'm a little further north and west, and we get colder here faster, and it actually makes a difference. So you can stick in your actual closest town, and it will give you information about your first and last frost date. The next thing is, I have a tool that I use all the time, and I, you know, it's one of my little secrets. I don't tell people about it, because I often am forecasting things and saying, we have 80 days until this happens, or we have 47 days until this happens. And when it's like 40 days, that's easy. But when it's like uh, 93 days, you end up looking at calendars and how many days are in this month. So I have a tool I use. It's at timeanddate.com, and it's a date duration calculator. And it has, just like you were making a reservation for a plane ticket, you click a little calendar and you select your month, day, and year, and uh, you click the end date and you go calculate duration, and it tells you how many days. So I know I have 102 days until my average first frost date right now because I use that tool. Those two tools are very helpful. They help you figure out stuff. Because the other thing you might want to do is you might want to look at your average temperatures in the past for weeks and months. And that way you know, well, not only when do I have to get it in the ground by, if I have some, some leeway, when is it okay to put it in the ground? Because a big healthy tomato, well mulched, well watered, and with lots of nutrients will do really good even when it's 100 degrees out. As long as it gets some shade at some part, point in the day, that's why the east side of buildings is a great place to build a garden, um, it, will, it will just do fine. It might not produce a lot, but it'll just hold its own, and then you get into fall, and when it starts to cool off, it'll boom, right? That's great. You get that end of year boom. But if you take a little one that you say, well, I have enough time to get tomatoes in the ground this year for a fall crop because I'm in the south, and it's little, and it's not established, and its roots are puny, and it hasn't gotten deep into the bed yet, and it's 104 degrees out, that plant is going to need some help. Now, deep mulch, good water, nice soil amendments, good fertility, and maybe a little bit of shade cloth, and all of a sudden that plant can get established. But if there's time on our side, if we have time to get it in the ground and get it going, in a few more, a week or two later, when the when the, the the big heat has passed, so much the better. So these the, this date duration calculator can help you really quickly determine how long you have. Well, if I don't put this in until September 10th, which is usually after our big heat wave, and when things tend to get a little cooler, how long do I still have? Right, and and then go a week earlier, right? And then plan in some protection, possibly, we'll talk about in a bit. And you can start to really drill down to what you really have available to yourself. Um, those of you that are up north have a lot less time than those of us that are in the south. My first frost date is, again, average November 17th. But I can tell you from my own notes uh, that I keep and my own recollection 
that generally are first frost in the last, oh, I'd say 10 years, has actually come the week of Thanksgiving. So more along the lines of the 24th, the 25th, that, that time frame, a week later. Last year it did not. Last year for Thanksgiving we had four inches of ice on the ground. So things change. Climate change is real. It's called weather. Um, actually, climate change is completely real in many different ways, but don't bet on the CO2 thing. Again, I challenge you to look up on YouTube why global warming failed and watch that video. Just going to throw that in there today. Anyway, back to what we're talking about, right? So you can plan all these things. So what is the first thing to start thinking about? Well, it's really a lot of things consecutively. Um, but one is your bets. Usually by this time in the year, if you're going to be planting a fall garden, you have some beds that you're about to cut all your plants back or yank your plants out or, or do whatever you're going to do, and you want to be getting them ready to, to put new crops in. Uh, another way you might do this, which is a lot more productive, is you have some crops that maybe still have some, some life left in them. Prune out the underneath and make a little hole down there and put your, your new tender plants down in that shade. And let them come up from underneath. Get your last harvest off your other plants and then just cut them at ground level and chop and drop them. That's, that's the recommendation that I have for you. Some plants it makes sense to do with this now and some plants it does not make sense to do this yet. Tomatoes, if they're established and healthy, they're probably going to produce right through the year for you if they're indeterminates. If they're determinants, you may have already gotten your big crop and you may not be getting much off of them. So it may be time to pull them out and replace them with new determinant tomatoes into your fall or a completely different crop and some crops are going to do well right up till the frost date so you might only cut them back or open up some space to plant into a few weeks before the frost date if you're going to go and switch into something that's going to be hyper productive so one example of that would be let's say you had really doing well determinant tomatoes and you wanted to have a fall crop of peas Well, how about this? About 30 days before your frost date, prune off the underneath of your tomatoes. Prune them up about a foot. Underneath, go in and poke a little row of holes and pop all your peas in so this bed is going to become a complete bed of peas. Cover them over and just keep going on the way that you've been going on. Pick all your tomatoes the day you know that you're going to have a frost that night. Cut your tomatoes compost what's what's there or chop it up finally and drop it around your peas. Your peas at that point will be up about six inches high. The light will come into them. They'll take over and you'll have a fall crop of peas. So start thinking about how you can manage this. But another thing to think about doing right now is soil amendments. The other thing that's gone on is your crops have drawn from the soil all summer long at this point. And I'm not saying all of this stuff is stuff to do now. It's all stuff to think about doing as you move into fall. So we're in the planning stage for fall right now. So this is when you add biochar, manure, green sand, and other amendments. right? This is a great time to do that. Um, in some cases, maybe it's pulling back mulch adding your amendments and pushing the mulch back over and adding fresh mulch. So mulch is another thing to be thinking about. This is also a good time for cover cropping. Um, for a bed that you're going to, like let's say it's done its thing. Let's say you planted broccoli, right? And you planted a whole bed of broccoli. I, I don't think many people are still cutting broccoli florets right now. You've got your big heads, you've got your side shoots, even if you're pretty far north. Broccoli's 
done, dude. It's sending up flowers. It's going to seed. It's had it. It's summer. This is a cool weather plant. All right, so let's say we want to plant this bed, and right now we're looking at, you know, we're at the first week of August, and maybe this has been something to do a week ago would have even been better. And we're thinking, in you know, around mid-September, I want to take this into lettuces and spinaches and kales and stuff like that. So now we've got this, you know, 45-day window in the heat where that bed is going to do a couple things. Sit there with, with broccoli gone to seed, and that's not terrible because there'll be flowers and insects and you can get some seed, and you can do that if you want to, or you can leave one or two plants if you want to, right? Pull back your mulch, though. Maybe even pile it up in the rows temporarily. Cut out all or most of your broccoli plants and pepper the whole bed with buckwheat. Buckwheat will go for a full cycle in six weeks, right? It will flower in three to four weeks. If you have bees, this is awesome. It will also build up a lot of organic matter. So we lay down a buckwheat cover crop, we feed our bees, or we bring in our pollinators if we don't keep bees, and a couple days before we plant our fall crop, we take a hoe, we hoe down all the buckwheat, we rake it in, and we return the mulch. Now we've got a green manure, soil amendment, we could have added other soil amendments before, during, or after the buckwheat chopped down. And the bed is ready to go. And a couple days after that buckwheat's chopped down, we plant it. We don't worry about the buckwheat coming back. It's shallow-rooted. Chopping it down is going to kill 95% of it. And if it if it were getting closer to that frost date, it's going to get really lethargic on cold nights. And the first day we get one degree into the frost plane, it's dead. So the cooler weather crops like the lettuce and the kales and the spinaches are going to take over. So now we've... We've, we've closed that, that cycle. And we, if we start thinking this way, we can already have that plan done. So how do I grow a crop for my bees without giving up one of my garden beds? Well, I plant a short-duration crop during in a hole that I design the hole. right? And people say, well, don't you do polyculture? Well, yes and no. right? A, a monoculture is something that we've gotten hypersensitive to. A bed of tomatoes surrounded by a bed of carrots that, that have peas in with it, surrounded by another bed that's, that's broccoli and cauliflower, and then another bed over here that's green beets. This is not a monoculture. This is a clumpy polyculture. Now, can we interplant the beds? Sure, and in some cases that makes a lot of sense. And in some cases for harvesting, it kind of makes sense just to grow a bed of green beans. So you can do the Mel Bartholomew square foot gardening approach with a, a different plant in every square Or you can set up beds and, and run them like a little farm. And if you're doing all types of polyculture around your whole property with trees, bushes, and vines, and perennials, the diversity is there. Okay, so that's that's another way to think about that. So I just wanted to throw that in for you. But by designing that hole, so does it work for you this year? Maybe, right? But if you designed it in, in the spring planning process, linking the, the fall and the winter together, It could have been designed in. So we might design two or three holes that can be bridged with a crop like buckwheat, bridge each of those holes phased out over a longer period, and one eight-foot bed of buckwheat will pretty much support one hive of bees for the duration of the time that that buckwheat's in flower fully. Now, hopefully they'll be getting other things too, but it's a big boost to them if it's nearby. And it's going to get them in your garden. They're, I mean, if you've ever seen buckwheat flower and you see what happens with bees, they come to it like a magnet. 
So if they're there, they're going to be doing all other great things in your garden, and it's going to bring in native pollinators as well. So now we, we've, we've functioned and stacked, we've space stacked, and we've time stacked. And there's other ways to do this. If we want to really get creative, we can do the same thing with the buckwheat that I talked about doing with the lettuce in a succession. So let's say we have our broccoli. It's still got side shoots coming up. We're thinking next week... Next week is when this needs to come down. Well, in a week, buckwheat sprouted and grown a couple inches. So we can pull the mulch back, put down our buckwheat, lightly restore the mulch to protect the, the broccoli till the buckwheat comes up. Let the buckwheat come up, get one more week of, of, of cutting the small side shoots of broccoli or whatever plant it is, maybe even two before the buckwheat really overtakes it, and then we can go in there and we can cut our broccoli. Or hell, we can let the buckwheat grow straight up around the broccoli and envelop it. It's okay. And then we can chop the whole thing when we're ready to go into the fall succession. So start thinking about how you can design holes for productive purposes to give the soil a an opportunity to be enhanced with something like a cover crop. And here we're not overstating. This is true active use of a cover crop. What about something like cowpea? Great, cowpea and buckwheat, great summer cover crop. Um, cowpea is a little tougher to kill. Cowpea makes sense to grow as a crop, like like a black-eyed pea or a red cowpea as a, or p p purple whole pea or pink-eyed pea or whatever you want as a crop. So give it enough time to produce by the time you want to pull it out. Or plant it a little closer to your frost date. So when you've chopped it down and some of it's still coming back on you, you know it's not going to – because it can really be aggressive. So think about your cover crops and, and how you're going to handle them. There's, there's tons of stuff that can be used. Mill it. Is a, is a good biomass accumulator as a cover crop. There's all types of things that can be used. We can plant a row of bush beans, and we can essentially make them the cover crop. So when we've harvested the beans and harvested the beans, and the beans are like, okay, dude, I'm done. Because bush beans produce for a time, and then they kind of quit. They're not like pole beans that will produce until frost. So when they've quit, then chop them into the soil and use them because that will – That will take the, the remaining nitrogen nodules that are still on them and all the nitrogen in their leaves and drop that to the soil. And we could come in and buckwheat after that. And then we could come in and take that buckwheat down and go to a fall crop. You're the designer in this. You're the artist. The palette is yours. The canvas is yours. You choose how to use it. I'm just giving you some ideas. Another thing we need to be looking at, though, is that heavy harvest of the summer crop. What's usually going to happen for most gardeners, this is my experience, and, and in the north and the south both, it's hot everywhere right now, except where maybe you're in some kind of weird weather pattern. It is hot in Pennsylvania right now. I know, I used to live there. The garden productivity slows because it's too hot. Peppers are like, yeah, I'm not doing it. You know, and if you live up where Brent does up in, you know, eastern, north, northeastern Canada, then, you know, you're probably booming right now. But for people in the more temperate regions, it's like, I'm just not doing it right now, dude. I'm tired. It's hot. I'll give you some later. When that, when that corner turns in the season and you walk outside and that, and the air, at least in the morning, has a nip to it. And your highs now are in like the 80s instead of the 100s or high 90s. The plants go, ooh, 
time to make lots of reproductive activity fast so I can get more seed in the ground to re, you know, to, to pro procreate my species. So it goes into this huge boom. So that abundant harvest is a really great thing to plan for. How am I going to deal with all the excess food? And how do I, how do I combine the harvest of the summer end with the planning of the fall beginning? And thinking that way will open you up to a lot of opportunity that I can't cover because I don't know each of your biomes and climates. That's a great way to think about it, though, and that's how you combine these things, and that's how you start thinking about things like, well, I can plant my lettuce in the shade under my crop for the fall two weeks before I know it's going to be gone anyway, or three weeks before I know it's going to be gone anyway. And if it's too shady under there, well, I can lose the side shoots for six to eight inches to open up that underneath. And as that sun comes up in the morning and goes down in the afternoon, there's enough light under there to support the growth of these new crops. And they'll like it in there because it's much cooler down in there. That's how you get there, is by thinking, how do I combine the harvest of abundance from the summer with the start of the fall creativity? All right. This is also a great time for new bed establishment. I, I kind of held back on the soil amendments because I'm going to cover them now. I'm, I'm currently installing some new beds. Um, I'm mostly through the process at this point. Now it's a matter of putting cardboard weed block down all around the whole garden and bringing in wood mulch both for the beds themselves and for the area around the beds. I may also have to put in a small like picket fence around this. I, I was one of the soil amendments that I used was uh, dried horticultural molasses, which is for feeding soil organisms. And as I was sprinkling it, I did about um, you know a, a quart flower pot, two on each bed, and these beds are 30 inches by eight feet, um, or actually 33 inches by eight feet. Funny story how that happened. I'll tell you as I get to it. But so I'm sprinkling the horticultural molasses and. I'm now on like the fourth bed, and I hear all a little conversation going on from the geese flock, and I turn around, and they're standing in the first bed eating the molasses. So I had to run them off and chase them back to their west pasture and all. But, you know, the geese are ruthless on even things they don't want to eat when it's new. Um, I've put four chestnut trees in the ground with the drip irrigation trays, and uh, before I got protection around them, they selected one for their wrath and ate it to the ground. Now, they don't want to eat a chestnut tree, um, but they did because it was there and it was new and it made them angry and it must be killed. So between the ducks who are out all the time and the geese who are out at times, I may put a – and I can't really get stuff in the ground here, but either by using cement in cinder blocks or deck blocks, put a simple um, – picket fence around the garden, which would look really attractive, by the way, and open up things like putting in narrow beds along the fence and trellising beans on it and stuff like that. Anyway, but so I'm building these beds and, you know, I don't have soil to work with here. And the reason I'm doing raised beds, because I would really recommend you consider in the ground beds if you have soil you can work with. I, I really prefer them to raised beds. Or very shallow raised beds. Let's say one landscaping timber high. Just as a way to create um, a clearly defined bed and to separate pathway from in the ground and a place, you know, kind of to hold weed block in place and uh, a mulch to hold things down. But our gardens in Pennsylvania were always in the ground because we had beautiful soil. 
And we constantly maintained those beds. And they would raise up as you amended them and piled compost and mulch on them. They'd end up four or five inches high, but there was nothing to contain them. There was just grass and clover in between the rows. Um, so even though you see me doing raised beds for this new annual garden, we've done so much with perennials. Dorothy and I just said we want to have some annual production again. And the easy route for us is to do it in a defined raised bed pattern. Don't think you always need to buy wood and build boxes and, and build up soil. If you have good soil, your plants will actually be better in the ground. The temperature's more stable. The water access is better. I'm doing this because it's what I can do with what I have. So then the next question becomes, well, where do I get dirt? Because there's just not enough dirt here to fill it with. I can't go somewhere and pull it from another part of the property or, or what have you. And the soil is very alkaline, which is not good for a lot of our crops. So down the road for me is a place called Silver Creek Materials, and they make what they call a premium soil blend. And it's basically 60% compost, and I know their compost is good. I'm not saying it's great, but it's good. It's not ridden with herbicides. It's good. And 40% cushion sand. And it makes a great soil mixture. So that's my base. So it took me three yards to fill six beds. Uh, not completely full because of all the other stuff going there. So then the next thing I did, and I'm doing this all in video for you guys. I'm going to have one video that's going to show the whole project start to finish. Not to plants being productive, but to the, the whole thing being done. But you can see the progress right now in a picture in today's show notes. So then the next thing I did was I want minerals in this, and I want to increase the water handling capacity of these beds. So I picked up six, not six bags, six bags? No, three bags of green sand. And I split each bag between two beds, which is like two to three times the recommended amount, which is fine. You can have more of it. It's not a fertilizer. It won't burn. What it is is a highly porous, coarse sand that's from ocean uh, deposits, And they call it green, and it's like a greenish gray. It's more like a gray sand with a little bit of a greenish hue to it. But I broke that up and spread that out over the beds. That helps retain moisture, and it's a huge mineral source for the beds to increase the mineral activity. Um, additionally, I, again, put down horticultural molasses, uh, about two six-inch flower pots. That's as accurate as I got uh, for each bed, spread out. This does a couple things. One, molasses is a source of nitrogen and uh, uh, potash, right? Potassium. So, uh, actually, you got phosphorus, nitrogen and phosphorus. It's one, zero, one. So, it's a low nitrogen fertilizer and a low uh, phosphorus fertilizer, but it's there. So, that gave a little bit of that. But the big thing it does is it provides sugar. Now, what is sugar? Sugar's food. Sugar's food for good soil bacteria and good soil fungi. So it's about establishing a microbe base in the soil. So those two went on. Then, knowing that I have such an alkaline environment and that a compost is generally pretty neutral, about a 7.0, and sand somewhere in the same range. Pure sand is somewhere in the same range usually. A little bit toward the aesthetic, 6.8-ish. A lot of annual vegetables really tend to do better with an acidic soil. Now, this doesn't mean four. This is like 6.0 to 6.5. Like 6.4, 6.5, that's great. So I'm not a big fan of peat moss and peat 
because I do believe the way it's mined is damaging to northern ecosystems in Canada. But it's there, and somebody's taking it out, and I don't think it's evil to use some of it. I think it's it's I think it's unfortunate that it's used in such large quantities. But if you're using it once to amend soil and you're done with it, I think there's plenty to go around for that without totally devastating ecosystems. So I used one 40-pound bag of peat humus, which moves us more toward the acidic and also brings organic matter and also brings um, water-holding cap- capability. Now, again, this is peat humus, not peat moss. This is a wet, crumbly substance. So one bag of that went to each bed. Biochar, this is how I do biochar. I buy lump charcoal to cook with. And I take the charcoal out with a glove on my hand so my hands don't end all black. And I end up with this pile of about two big double handfuls of small pieces of charcoal in the bottom of the bag. That's my biochar. If I need a little more, I take some bigger pieces out of the bag, put it in like a cloth bag, and beat it with a freaking stick. Now, can you get better biochar? Probably. But when you're using lump charcoal, it's biochar. Biological material made in chart. Do not use briquettes. They have binders and chemicals in them, right? But just plain old lump barbecue charcoal. And I haven't added it yet, but I will. I'll add about, you know, two or three big handfuls to each bed. And most of this gets added to the top and just raked in a little bit. I don't till this in. Let soil organisms do that. I will also be adding one three-pound bag of blood not blood meal, bone meal, to each bed. That's a great uh, nitrogen and potassium uh, fertilizer. I think it's like 690, I think is the NPK. So we're building the nitrogen there because <clears throat> fresh compost is usually 111, which is when you're at 60%, that's plenty of nitrogen, but it's not all immediately available. So a lot of times people use a lot of compost and go, I don't understand, my plants are still nitrogen deficient. They just don't look very healthy to me. So getting something in that has a, a, an immediately available nitrogen, like a bone meal or like fermented beet juice, which miracle Grow has a bad rap because of Scott's, and Scott's is a, not owned by but affiliated with Monsanto and what have you. But Scott's, through the miracle brand, uh, miracle Grow brand, makes some awesome organic fertilizers. And they're liquid organic nitrogen fertilizers, 12 parts nitrogen. It is made from fermented beet juice. It is amazing. And so when I plant into a bed as well prepared as this, you're probably not going to have any nitrogen deficiency. But if I look at a plant, and I've shown this with the therapy that I did to some of my mulberries that I was working on, mulberry cuttings, and you see like they're like a washed yellow look. And you hit them with that, and two days later, they just brighten up with green. And as that plant establishes its root system and grows healthier, it can start working with the soil microbes. It can start producing exudates and getting what it needs from the soil. But you've got to get it there first, and you've got to get the soil there first. So these are bridges. They don't have to be constantly added, but they definitely help with establishment and development of the bed. Notice that everything I'm using here... It's completely organic. The other thing I, I ordered from Amazon Prime, by the way, I ordered two 15-pound ba- bags of worm castings. This is why I ordered two 15-pound bags. The same company made a 30-pound bag. 
the bag costs more, and the 30-pound bag wasn't on Prime. So it had a shipping cost that was huge. The 15-pound bags, when you added the two together, <laughs> costed less than the 30-pound bag. And uh, then it was on, they were on Prime, so they came with free shipping. So when you're buying stuff like I was like, I need worm castings. So I have 30 pounds of, of, web, uh, of worm castings coming, and you don't have to take a, be a genius to divide six beds into 30 pounds. You get five pounds of worm castings. So five pounds of worm castings are going to go into each bed, and then a, a layer of uh, finely shredded hardwood mulch on top uh, that you know will be pulled back for any seeds, and as the seeds come up, the mulch will be returned around the seedlings. So that's the beds that I'm putting in. Um, it might sound pretty intensive, uh, the, the soil amendments, and I'm not saying you have to go that far, but here's what I'm doing with these beds. The way they're designed, the way they're laid out, uh, the area they're put in for solar exposure on the eastern side of, uh, of one of my shop buildings, giving them a break from the heat in the late evening when the, the temperature is the highest, um, plumbed with half-inch PVC, fed by three-quarter-inch PVC, Each bed has three, they're called shrub sprinklers in it, two half patterns, one on each end spraying in, one full pattern in the center, two valves, turn them on. In 10 minutes, the beds are soaked, turn it off. You're watering, you know, have I gotten the, the sprinklers so that 100% of the water ends up in the bed and nothing ends around it? No, but I'd say 85% of the water goes in the beds, soaks the beds. Um, I'm trying to take everything I've learned about raised beds in the past and combine it all into a really optimized system. And there's a lot of other things with this, like all the beds being relatively narrow. Instead of four foot wide, the footprint of the whole garden is smaller. The pathways in between the beds are only 12 inches. Even if weeds start to come up, you can go through there with a weed whacker, 10 seconds, done. Throw another layer of cardboard down for weed block. Throw another layer of wood chips down. Annual maintenance, no problem. So all of that leads to, with the standard dimension bed, the ability to build things like uh, frost protection support and be able to just put one thing on any of the beds and then cover it and have the beds protected from frost or hail or anything else. So as you watch the video, I think of this, that'll make more sense for you, and that should be out by the end of the week uh, or maybe the beginning of next week. So that's my new beds currently being installed. Now, why is this a good time? Well, it's a good time... <laughs> because generally speaking, there is a hole in your activity here. You're not doing a lot of harvesting. I mean, some of you guys in really temperate climates, this is your this is your boom time. But for a lot of us in the south, this is where everything slows down. You know, we have two pauses in southern climates. We have the, the pause in the depth of winter at the coldest period where it's too cold, and we have a pause in the center of the summer where it's too hot. So this is a pause for us. The bad, of course, is that it's hot as blazes. Um, the other good thing about this is that by establishing a fall crop, you get a lot of biological activity established in the fall. So as you come into spring, your beds are well established for your spring crop. So this is actually a good time for new beds. Um, some things I'm getting ready for fall crops, you have to decide, am I going to provide protection or not? I have seen a lot of people use PVC, and I'm going to play with that. Uh You put in some, some some poles or what have you attached to the side of your beds. You stick a half-inch piece of PVC, bed it over like a coven, covered wagon, and throw some clear plastic over it. 
That's that's a great way to protect crops. And I'm thinking that another way is like so we have these really heavy moving blankets from our move, uh, and you could really easily when you get into just trying to get through a frost that you know it's not going to you're not because usually this is what happens right you get to your first frost and you get a freeze and everything dies and then the next day it doesn't freeze the next day or the day after you go like another week without frost well you get through that you get another week of of, of plants. So what you could do is take a small heater uh, with a thermal cube, which is like for the ones I have for the winter, at, at, at 35 degrees they turn on, and at 45 degrees they shut off. And set a small heater under there covered with that uh, or heavy row cover, and you're not going to lose anything to a frost at all or even a pretty good freeze. You probably can handle down in the 20s then with plants that would otherwise die. A lot of your other plants, though, your fall plants, I'm going to give you 10 really great fall crops. They just do better once you get into freezing with some protection. So that's another thing to look at. And standard beds, again, make using whatever protection method you develop available across the board. Next up, I want to talk about weeds. So if we can do a, a chop and drop of a cover crop, that's great. That'll suppress a lot of weeds. But if we're, for some reason, not going to be able to do that. And during our um, our summer, we've picked up a lot of weeds, and we've got some weeds going on. The more fertility we have, believe it or not, the less weeds we're going to have. But you also get things like grasses. You know, grasses like fertility. So a lot of your weed problems, the way to actually get rid of your weeds is to build fertility. And the weeds just won't germinate in highly fertile soil. That's not their job. But sooner or later, we deal with some weeds. And the conventional wisdom is pull them out. And if they pull out, fine. Uh, but the best way I know to kill weeds is darkness, especially in the heat of summer. Now, this will kill them dead. So with a defined width raised bed, you'll get a simple heavy-duty tarp. You should have plenty of tarps in your life anyway if you're a modern pre modern prepper, modern survivalist. And just cover the bed with a tarp and weigh it down. And leave it covered and in darkness, especially in the heat, for a couple weeks, and it will kill dead every weed under there. Every blade of grass, it will die. Now, the problem with doing this in the heat is you also can damage microbes. So it's not the best time of year to be killing weeds with a tarp because it just gets so flipping hot underneath there. But if instead of laying the tarp on the soil surface, if you use the framework that you've created with your uh, protection design and the tarp's up in the air but you've still choked off all the light, it'll get pretty hot under there. But as long as you keep the soil moist, the soil will actually stay pretty cool And you'll kill all your weeds and knock back all your weeds simply by denying them of light. And your soil microbes will be eating all their roots and be pretty happy down there. Again, though, this is something where you kind of have to pull that up every couple days and make sure you keep the soil moist and wet and mulch during this period. The reason I really bring it up for now is at some point the fall season is going to come to an end. And you're going to have a hole in the winter period and probably a time frame before you plant. And this is when a lot of your early season weeds take hold. So if you're at a point where you've, you've fall garden to the point where putting in a winter cover crop really just is not an option anymore. 
And if you ha if you did that, your your cover crop's actually going to be lethargic and then get well established and actually in the way of your spring planting. This is the time to tarp a bed. If you tarp a bed through the winter, when you pull that bed back, the tarp back, it's going to be covered in earthworms, soil buggers, all the stuff you want going on, and there won't be a weed to be seen. And instead of starting out your spring pulling weeds and double digging and turning soil and tilling soil and distorting the, the, the biological life in your soil, you pull back a tarp and you plant. And maybe add a layer of mulch at that point. So as part of your fall planting is thinking about having tarps for that purpose going in. Next, this is actually a really great time to start a lot of plants for the fall that you would start in pots and maybe indoors or I have an area I kind of use like a, 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 a summer nursery. It's over by my tank, uh, my, my water storage tank. It's on the east side of the same building that the garden's on the east side of. But instead of being on the east side, you know, out away from it, it's right up against the eastern wall. And there's three huge live oaks back there. So between the trees and the eastern wall of the building, that area stays nice and cool. I can go out there on a 100-degree day with a beer, sit there, look at my garden ponds, sit in a chair, watch the ducks play, and not really be uncomfortable at all. It's just a nice, cool area. Middle of the day when the sun's high, some, some light gets in, so that's good. So it's a great place for a nursery. So I have a natural place like that. You may need to build a small screen house. You may need to get lights and actually do your seed starting indoors. It's up to you, but it's probably the case that if you're, you know, getting spinach or kale or something like, or broccoli plants ready for the winter, that if you try to put them in the soil right now, they just aren't going to make it. They're just not going to, it's just too hot. Or they're going to germinate. If you keep them cool enough in the soil, they'll germinate. They'll come up, and when they're like, at a point where they should be getting really stocky and turning into this mature plant and giving you everything you want, they're going to send up a, 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 a column, a seed head column, and just go to seed. It's just, it's just too hot to plant a lot of things like that from seed right now. If you're in my climate, you may be able to just wait a few weeks, plant it from seed. But in some climates, you only have a, you know, a short enough window to where you get into not just the frost day, because broccoli will survive a frost, but I've got to get again, yeah, I got to get a size to it where it'll, it'll thrive and produce for me once I start getting frost and the days are shorter. So you might have to start them inside. And this is exactly like you do in the winter. And that's what I think people struggle with. Winter, people don't have any problem with, hey, I'm going to start my tomatoes in February. I'm going to have this light, you know, greenhouse or heated sunroom or whatever it is. And I'm going to get these plants nice and healthy. So as soon as I'm past my, my danger of frost, I'm putting them in the ground. This is just flipping that thinking around and counting back from the last frost or the first frost date instead of, you know, forward to the last frost date. Uh, the next thing is selecting plants from a nursery. This is a good time. If you buy, and I don't have a problem with buying plants from box stores. I prefer to buy from independent nurseries. But if you're thinking, you know what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to, you know, for broccoli, screw starting seed. Uh, I'm going to buy a flat of broccoli plants and put them in, you know, about September 10th. Okay, great. Um, you don't plan on that without talking to your, your suppliers first. So if you're going to be getting plants from nurseries, whether they're box stores or independents, start asking now, do you do fall vegetables? If you do, what do you get in? 
And if you're like, I want to, I want to do purple cabbage and, and broccoli, and those are the two ones I don't want to do from seed. I want to just buy the plants and stick them in the ground. Tell them that and say, do you get this in? And if they say yes, you say, can I right now reserve from you a flat of each? And 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 they may say not only that, not only will I do that for you, but that, it's just I know they're going to sell. I'll just order more from my supplier. So be thinking ahead that way. As for what the plant, um, those of us in the south, we you know I'm going to be putting in some detail peppers. Um, probably by Friday, they'll they'll grow in this heat. They don't care. Um, so we can get peppers. We can put in cucumbers. We can, in the south right now. I have enough time. I can and I'll probably plant some cucumbers, some seed. I'll just have to really provide a little extra shade until they get established. You know, I have enough time. I can put in winter squash right now as long as I can get it to germinate and get it past that infantile stage. Um, for a lot of you guys, though, you need to be thinking within the next month about putting things in the ground that are frost that are frost tolerant. And when I when I think of fall gardening, I think it's salad time of year. I know some of you summer is the salad time of year. Here, this, the the greatest salad growing is, is here is in the fall. That's when our, we get our cool temperatures. We get a little bit of frost. Everything tastes a little bit better. So most of what I'm going to talk about is good for that salad use. Spinach is my favorite. And I cannot grow spinach in the summer here. I can grow it in the spring, early spring. I can grow it in the middle of winter with protection. And I can grow the hell out of it in the fall. So spinach is one of my favorite go-to fall vegetables. And I like to do, even though, like I said, you can do a row of, like, you know, let's say broccoli or a whole bed of broccoli or a whole bed of tomatoes. Greens I like to interplant. So I'll do a spinach and then maybe a chard. So Swiss chard is another great fall vegetable. Swiss chard is something I really think about where I plant it, though, because I can take chard right through winter, right into spring, keep cutting it all the way back to fall, and it's a biannual, meaning it'll produce seed in its second season. And I've even seen chard, if you just keep aggressively cutting it, I've seen chard go three seasons. So with Swiss chard, I often try to think about where can I put at least some of it that I won't have to pull it out, I won't have to disturb it. So that's usually not in my annual beds. That's usually going to be in a a summer shaded area interplanted within a, a, a forest garden is a great place for chard. But in beds, I treat it a lot just like spinach. Um, so spinach and chard, you have the makings of a great salad right there. Um, beets. I love to grow beets more for the greens than for the beets themselves. But the nice thing about beets is you can take young greens and just don't overcut, and you still develop a nice root, and then you can make the awesome purple nurple. I mentioned this in the comments section recently about eggs, and people want to know what a purple nurple is. Purple nurple works this way. You make pickled beets. Now you have pickled beets and pickled beet juice. You eat all the beets. Into the pickled beet juice, you add hard-boiled eggs. You close the jar. And you stick them in the refrigerator for about a week, and then you have purple nurples. They are awesome. Um, if you mix them with beer in large quantities, they are sulfuric. I'll just leave it at that, right? You will produce copious amounts of sulfur gas uh, and methane. <laughs> and you might get thrown out of your house by your significant other if you put too much beer and too much purple nurple together. But... I will say this, it's worth it because they go together beautifully, especially in the cool fall air. So beets I like to grow. Garlic, this is the time to plant garlic. September is garlic time. 
And it's not for garlic this year. It's for garlic next September. So, or, or next August. So, as a kid, tending my grandfather's garden, it would be right about now, maybe another week from now, that we would get this big, rusty-looking, old coal grate out and set it up on some cinder blocks. And then I'd be sent down to the garden with a pair of snips and a wheelbarrow. And I'd pull all the garlic and cut the tops off and put it in the wheelbarrow. And then I'd take the wheelbarrow to the grate, and I'd set the garlic out to dry out on the grate for a few days, and then I'd be sent out with a bunch of saved onion bags, put the garlic in, and hang it up in the cellar. And my grandfather, while I was doing this, would go through and pick out the best garlics. And he'd set all that aside. And, you know, about September, I'd say right after dove season. So dove season uh, was, was usually the first day was the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend in Pennsylvania. So it'd be like that next week, you know, back to school week up there. Uh, I would be out planting garlic cloves. And that would be for next year. And they would be from the garlics that he selected as the best garlics. So this is just the time for garlic to get that that crop in the ground for next year. So if you're doing conventional raised bed planting, garlic makes sense to plant right down the middle of a bed so that it's out of the way of all your other plantings. So it doesn't take up any space at all. Uh, carrots, which I'll get to in a bit, are a lot like that as well. So are onion and leeks. Except onion and leeks, we're going to harvest in a much shorter period. This is not a good time to plant big onions. Most big onions, like Vidalias and red onions and stuff like that, to grow big need long day length. So they're really a summer crop. But this is a great time for like bunching onions and things like that. Green onions, small onions. It's also a great time to plant leeks. This is really a great, great time for leeks. And leeks, um, braised or roasted and seasoned right, a little bit of bacon grease on them, uh, really are great on the Thanksgiving table. Something most people don't think about eating or including with that. So there's plenty of time between now and Thanksgiving to have fresh leeks from the garden for Thanksgiving. Another plant I've mentioned quite a bit today is broccoli. And I think people that don't like broccoli have never eaten real broccoli. I think what they've eaten is mushy green crap from a freezer section of the store or something like that. Fresh, picked, properly cooked broccoli is amazing. And it is a beautiful crop to grow this time of year. It loves the cool weather. I've got pictures I've shared before on Facebook where I have broccoli plants from my garden in Arlington with ice on the leaves, and the plants survived. Like, the leaves are frozen from an ice storm, and the plants survived and kept producing. Now, a lot of the leaves got frostburn and turned color, but the plant kept growing, it put new leaf on, and it just kept producing. Broccoli is a plant that a lot of people think, why would I plant that? Broccoli's not that expensive, um, and I get this one head of broccoli and I'm done. But that's not how broccoli works. <clears throat> broccoli, you cut that big head, And within a week, you've got these tons of little shoots that you go out and cut. Well, if you plant your broccoli in a bed and you go out and you harvest all your big heads as they become available, you eat as much as you can fresh, blanch and flash freeze whatever you can't eat right away from your big head. So the way you do that, throw it in a steamer, steam it for about two minutes to turn bright green, immediately rinse all the water, like shake all the water from the steam off of it, 
uh, actually take it out of the of the uh, steamer and put it into ice water. So give it an ice water bath immediately. Stop the cooking. You're just blanching. You don't want it to really be cooked. You're stopping enzymic activity, so when you freeze it, you won't end up with a broth. If you don't do this with certain vegetables, what happens you take it out of the freezer, it looks great, cook it, looks great, tastes uncooked. It's like hard. That's due to the enzymic activity that's going on in the freezer. So by blanching it, we stop, we halt that. We take the broccoli, we put it into an ice water bath. Shake it off, get it as, as dry as you can. Now, this is my secret for broccoli, um, so that you can use it whenever you want to through, throughout the winter after you've, you've done this to it. Get a cookie sheet. Spread it one layer on a cookie sheet, as much as it'll fit. Put it in a freezer. Wait about 10 minutes till it freezes, like the outside freezes, maybe 20 minutes. Then immediately open a big Ziploc bag, throw it in a Ziploc bag, close the Ziploc bag, throw it back in the freezer. Leave air in the Ziploc bag at first so everything stays apart. Let that freeze solid. Keep doing it until you run out of broccoli. Once your broccoli's good and frozen, go back through and, and then force all the air out of your Ziploc bag. What you'll get is a bag of broccoli where all the pieces are individually frozen, And when you want broccoli, if you want a handful for a stir-fry, you open your Ziploc bag, stick your hand in, pull them out, and throw it in there. Instead of having this big clump of broccoli where you have to take the whole bag out. That way you can use large bags of broccoli, one or two or three big two-gallon bags in a deep freezer, and you've got broccoli for a long time. And trust me, if you do what I just said, it will be very difficult for you to tell that that broccoli was ever frozen. It will taste very, very fresh, especially if you do all of that the day you pick it. And the quicker you do it, the better. The ideal would be to have the steamer running, go out, cut all the heads that you know you can't use right away, bring them in, cut them into pieces, into the steamer, into the ice water bath, into the uh, into the, the cookie sheet freezer method, into the Ziploc bags, into the freezer. Now, cooking broccoli. If it's no longer bright green, you've overcooked it. If it's mushy, you've overcooked it. If there isn't at least a little bit of resiliency crunch in there, you've overcooked it. And if you'll cook broccoli, no matter how you choose to cook it, with that, you'll find yourself loving broccoli. The other thing is a lot of people, they like the florets, but not the stems. The stems are a little tricky. The thing with your stems is peel them. If you peel them and then do everything else I said, you'll end up with stems that are just as good or almost as good as the florets. How I like to cook broccoli, I love it in stir-fries, chicken stir-fry, beef stir-fry, shrimp stir-fry, all that stuff. Again, the key is, it's one of those things that, when I make stir-fry, I don't do what everybody else does. I don't put all the vegetables in at the same time. I'll put my longer cooking vegetables like carrots, celery, peppers in. When they're almost cooked, I'll throw broccoli in until it's bright green. And like, if I'm using like pod peas, like, like sugar peas, snap peas, something like that, I put them in at the very end and I'll just kill the heat and let them steam through. And that way you get, because if you try to cook broccoli the same way you cook a carrot, you get a good carrot and a mushy broccoli, right? Or a good broccoli and a, and a carrot that's undercooked. They're not, they don't have the same structure. So that's one way I like them. Probably my favorite way to do broccoli, aluminum foil, put your portion of broccoli down, either real butter or olive oil drizzled, a little bit of Italian seasoning, Chef Keek's Northern Italian is the best one I know of, and a little sprinkling of red pepper flakes. If you, if you don't, or you have people in your family that don't like red pepper flakes and you do, add it at, you know, add it at the end, but it, it's better when it's cooked in like that. Seal that up completely and put it on the grill, and, and, and basically you're steaming it in that packet. And, you know, 
I don't know. I, again, I'm not one of these cooks that can tell you, do it for 13.7 minutes. I don't know. Um, when that bag is nice and puffed up and tight because it's steaming, get it off the grill. And it can sit there for you know another 10 minutes without really overcooking it if you get it off the heat. It'll be nice and warm when you open it. If you open it, it'll be cold when you serve it. Then you'll try to reheat it, and it'll get mushy. If you leave it on the grill, it'll be mushy. So those are my two favorite ways to do that. A little bit of a cheese sauce is good on broccoli. Bacon and bacon grease, like bacon crumbles. So you take some bacon, fry it up. Reserve your bacon, pat it dry, chop it up into like bacon bits, put it aside. Put the bacon grease on the broccoli, do it on the grill. Or saute it in the bacon grease in a pan. Then, when you serve it, sprinkle the dried bacon over the, the you know the, the the cooked bacon over. It's awesome, awesome. You do that with green beans too. So broccoli done that way is great, and it's just a great crop for the fall because it gives you a heavy abundance, an abundance beyond what you can do that can be preserved with flash freezing, and then these continuous shoots that keep coming for sometimes weeks or months that I've gotten uh, broccoli shoots. I've never done as well with broccoli here as I have in the Northeast. In Pennsylvania, broccoli for us was a spring crop, and I'd get my first big heads about mid-May. And I would still be cutting shoots off right up till about the 4th of July, and then it was just kind of like, you know what, dude, uh, I think I'm done. You might get one or two more bits of broccoli, and then it was like, I quit. I hate you. I don't want to be bothered anymore. Fall, another great crop is cabbage. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say kale is going to be the next one. So you've got these brassias, right? So anything in the brassia family. So I'm not mentioning really uh, cauliflower or Brussels sprouts because I don't really like those. Um, but those, of course, would fit in well as well. But uh, cabbage is another great crop for now. And I've learned a trick with cabbage. So you cut your head of cabbage off, and then you got the stem. If you take your knife and cut a cross in the stem, so... Um, You, you know, make a circle with your, your thumb and forefinger and look through the hole. Now imagine that's the stem. So you're looking down on it. You make a cross cut about a half inch deep into your stem. A lot of times your cabbages then will put four little cabbage heads on, one on each piece of the stem. So you get a second harvest. I don't grow a lot of cabbage. Um, I'm not big on eating cabbage um, in, you know, the quantities you get when you grow a lot of it. I like dry slaws and pepper cabbages, and I really like sauerkraut, but I'm the only one that eats it. So, you know, I might make two or three jars of sauerkraut a year, and that's probably all I really need for my own personal use. But I do like to grow a little bit of cabbage. I like to grow some Asian cabbages as well. So cabbage doesn't have to be just green cabbage. It can be purple cabbage. It can be Asian cabbages, uh, Napa cabbages, stuff like that. So you get diverse with that, and you get a little more utility out of it. Um, I don't mind it in a salad, but Dorothy doesn't like it, so it's not really worth for us to grow a lot of it. So you have to consider other family members in this. Kale, I love. Kale is good. You know, young kale in a salad, raw, awesome. Braised kale, awesome. And it's very, very resilient, and it'll go to the depths of winter for you. Carrots are one of my true loves to grow. And I'll tell you why. I have never eaten a carrot out of a grocery store organic or otherwise, that compares to a freshly picked braised carrot. Um, my my buddy Neil came to visit us in Arkansas, and carrots were in season. So I went out and I pulled about four beautiful Scarlet Nantes carrots and cleaned them up and peeled them and sliced them up 
put them in foil, butter, sage, salt and pepper. Fresh sage, not dried crap out of the you know spice counter. Use it if you have to, but fresh chopped sage. Just a little pinch, not pinch, a big pinch, right, uh, of fresh chopped sage, carrots, butter, a little bit of salt and pepper. That's the whole thing. Again, seal that foil package up, put it on the grill. I made that with grass-fed uh, uh, ribeye steaks for him. And I made a beautiful steak. And he is on and on and on. This carrots, mate. These carrots, he's British. These carrots, mate. They're just amazing. How do you do this? What's your secret, right? So I'm like, you saw me do it. It's butter, sage, salt and pepper, carrots on the grill. So he calls me like two months later. And this is just how Brits are. You effing bastard, right? That's the first thing he says. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? He goes, you haven't given me your secret. I'm like, what? I don't even know what the hell he's talking about yet. And when he said effing, he used the word, right? So I said, dude, what the hell is your problem, you know? He goes, the effing carrots, mate. You didn't give me your secret. He goes, how do you make them again? Tell me. And I'm like, butter, sage, salt and pepper, use fresh sage. And I effing use the the sage the way you I, I got fresh it's not the same it doesn't work did you put it on the grill yes i put it on the effing grill what is wrong with you bloody this and you know effing that i'm like where'd you get your carrots he's like at the bloody market i'm like well there's your problem he's like what i'm like they were fresh carrots out of the ground they're never going to be the same and I, I, he still thinks i'm holding out on him to this day i'm not there's when you grow carrots in deeply enhanced mineralized soil and you pull that carrot out of the ground and it's cooked within you know a few hours of it coming out of the ground, even your own homegrown carrots properly stored will be good. They will never taste like they do the day that you pull them out of the ground. There is a richness. There's Even though you're cooking them in butter, there's a butteriness to a carrot like that. And it can't be replicated. This is the cool thing about carrots. You can get carrots in pelleted seed. This makes your life easy. And it's cheap. And it's, yes, you can save it to the second year and get your seed for free. And, but listen, you get pelleted seed. You always leave the center of your bed with some space for either carrots or onions or garlic. And you can fit carrots and garlic in the center of a bed and still plant two rows in a narrow 30, 33-inch bed. Okay, plenty of room there. You can go carrot, garlic, carrot, onion, carrot, garlic, carrot, onion. You can do that if you want to, but I just do a row of carrots. And what you do in the fall is you get to where it's you know you can grow carrots. Take your finger and make little holes. Make little holes about one inch apart. Okay, get your carrot pelleted seed and go right down the middle of your row with your carrot pelleted seed and just brush the dirt back over. You've pulled the mulch back to make a furrow and you've made the holes with your finger. These are very, very shallow holes. You're just making a dimple in the soil. Okay? The easy thing to do is get a handful of dirt, you know, that you've preserved aside, and just sprinkle it over. Because carrots just need to be barely covered. Leave the mulch off. Wait for the carrots to come up. Most of the carrots will germinate. One inch apart is too close. Let them be. Push the mulch back around them once they've got their tops up. Wait. When the carrots are really small, see, don't thin them, right? Wait till the carrots are smaller than you'd like them to be. Go pull every other one out and make baby carrots. Yum. 
and then let the other half, now they'll be two inches apart, grow to full size. And do that in a bed now. Well, it's a little too hot now, but once you're ready to start doing this, do it in a bed. Wait a week, do it in another bed. Wait a week, do it in another bed. Wait a week, do it in another bed. You'll spread your harvest way out. Take them all, and you can, if you have a long fall season, if you get to the end and you've now pulled your first bed, replant that bed. Here's why. If those carrots develop for you, okay, this is a secret that a lot of people don't know. This is an old school way of doing things. You get a good sized carrot that you could harvest, but you're not going to use them all right now. Bend the tops over and cover them with mulch. When you get into your frost, te- you know, when you get into your real freezing temperatures, leave them in the ground, pull them as you need them. They'll store in the ground. And then they will taste fresh picked because they are. Store many root crops in the ground. And frankly, I wanted to point out here that just about any root crop will do well in the fall. So any other root crops you like. Uh, parsnips, everything I said about carrots, same with parsnips. Uh, so that's another great plant. And then lettuces. Again, it's just a cabbage, or not a cabbage, a salad time of year. And lettuce is something that a lot of, like in the in the South, you can hold it right through the winter. I mean, anything other than a crushing ice storm that just destroys it, it'll stay alive. But you get the short days and really cold days in like January and February, and that little lettuce plant that you've cut a few times now just sits there. And it sits there. And it sits there. And it sits there. And you're like, grow, and it won't grow. It just sits there. You give it some heat. You give it a little bit of frost protection. You cover it with something. And you might have to open it during the middle of the day when the sun's at its highest and vent it. But also it starts growing again. And it'll grow like mad. In fact, I have a couple videos that I'll put in today's show notes where I demonstrated this using a fish tank. I had two patches of lettuce. They were in the same bed. They had the same solar exposure, the same amount of water, the same everything. There was a left and a right side. I put a fish tank over one side, and the difference between the two of them is unbelievable. And that one little patch of lettuce was feeding us a salad every other day all winter long from that one little patch with a fish tank over it. So it can't be that big of a fish tank fit over it. What was interesting is the lettuce that was close to but not inside the fish tank did almost as good as the stuff underneath it just by getting the residual heat from the tank. So lettuce, the key with lettuce is when you get to the point where it starts to, it's staying alive, but it's not putting growth on anymore, give it some cover. Give it some cover and some warmth, and it'll start, it'll pick up for you, and you can cut it, and it comes back, and you can cut it, and it comes back, and you can cut it, and it comes back. All the way up into spring, you get the first real warm days, and up comes the center shoot, and it's bolted. By then, you've planted your net, your spring crop of lettuce, and you're either harvesting seed, Or you're, you're, you're chopping it, dropping it, or pulling it out. But that's, that's how you get your lettuce through. So carrots, store them in the ground. Lettuce, kale, spinach, chard, all of the leaf crops will do exactly what I said. If you give them some kind of like a mini greenhouse type of situation. And again, if you haven't ever seen these videos before, watch them today. And when you see the difference between the plants in the same bed, it'll blow you away. And you'll need to understand something. The ones that are small and puny had never been cut. And the ones that were under the greenhouse, uh, the fish tank, were being constantly cut three, four times a week. And they were just coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back. So check out that video. There'll be a link in today's show notes again. 
Uh, and what I want to finish up with today is how we can how we can get an edge on the cool weather, how we can keep things growing like the mini greenhouse that I talked about with a fish tank. And one of the biggest things we can do is to put in windbreaks. So if you look at your garden spot and you're like, look at that, it's right out in the middle of the open, it gets lots of sun and it's beautiful and there's nothing around it. The problem is in the summer, hot winds make irrigation a lot more difficult because they evaporate everything. And in the winter, everything's much colder. So the wind chills big time. Anybody that's familiar with the weather knows that, you know, in the winter they give you two sets of, uh, two sets of temperatures, what the temperature is and what the temperature feels like. And if there's wind, it feels a lot colder than it is. The other thing is that plants just get the shit beat out of them. It, it sucks to put in new young plants. And then look outside, you see the leaves going, and they're just tearing up. You know, it looks like they're sitting in the back of a pickup truck going down the road at 50. You know, because we, and we get gusts. I mean, I hear people talking about the storm that's coming in today has winds gusting to 35 miles an hour. I call that Tuesday. I mean, without a storm. I mean, typical wind speeds here. We get 30, 40 mile an hour wind gusts. Uh, Michael Jordan says up on the plains in Wyoming, it's 60, 70 mile an hour wind gusts when nothing's going on. Well, that's hard on a plant from a lot, from a mechanical standpoint and from a temperature standpoint. So by looking at your prevailing winds and saying my prevailing winter winds are here, summer winds are here, and putting in some sort of a windbreak there is a great idea. For temporary purposes, go out, And set up some pl propped up plywood or something really close just to stop them from being, you know, having the hell beat out of them. So windbreaks are key. Southern exposure, making sure that, you know, the east side of a building's great. As long as the southern exposure gets lots of solar radiation in the summer. So you want to make sure that the sun can get in when it's on that low angle, not just on that high angle for fall, winter gardening. Um, row covers are a great idea as well. So are um, thermal masses. So if you have a lot of rock laying around, especially something that's not highly alkaline like all my freaking limestone, putting a few rocks in and around your bed will, will build up that thermal mass for you. So again, when you look at my mini greenhouse out of fish tank video, look at the lettuce plant that actually was just adjacent to the greenhouse not even inside it. Just the residual warmth had a marked improvement on its growth. So pu putting some rockeries around or doing anything you can to hold thermal you know, mass in place. Uh, black plastic mulch. So you take sheet black plastic and put it down the center between the rows. will hold heat in the soil for you because it'll build the heat from the black coloration. Something you have to remove, though, if you have weird climates like here where one day it's in the teens and the next day it's 85 degrees out. We have days in February like that. It can get too hot. So, you know, you have to decide whether that really works for you or not. Um, again, floating row covers are a great way. They don't really keep it warm, but what they do is they keep the frost off the plants so it doesn't settle on the plants. The micro greenhouse approach is really a good idea. And... You know, I did it way back in the day, so to speak. I would have been about 2011, 2012, the videos with the fish tanks, just because I had the lettuce in the ground, and I looked at it and thought, what a great way for people to see it. Because there's, it's perfect for this 40-gallon tank to sit here, and people could see the difference. 
but with you know a, a, a you know a bed that's somewhere between 30 and 48 inches wide and eight feet long, it's really not hard to build you know basically a greenhouse over the whole bed or over several beds. It's probably the best way that you can produce food in the winter. It's better than trying to grow inside a conventional greenhouse because the in-ground soil, even with a raised bed, is more temperature stable. Uh, it, it requires way less watering. When plants, plants are in pots, they need a lot more watering. So either a, a greenhouse with beds in it or a mini greenhouse over a bed is really a great way to go. Jesse uh, Tegmeyer, who's one of our tenant farmers at Permaethos Farm, uh, just built several chicken tractors that are at permaethos.tv, by the way. Again, it's in beta, so members of the first class of the PDC, you guys can see the videos now. Uh, we'll open uh, the subscription service to everybody in about 12 weeks. Uh, but he built these chicken tractors, and we have a time-lapse video of us building the chicken tractor. Uh, for those that saw that video, those tractors are more accurately mobile coops. It's a place for the birds to go get shade and a place for the birds to sleep and be protected at night because the out, around the outside will be electronetting. So they'll have a lot more space than just that tractor. So that's how those are being built. Anyway, those tractors basically are built uh, with hog panels as your, your, your arch that make them like a covered wagon shape. Well, what we can do with those is in, in the winter when the chicken... Uh, growth is done for the year. We'll run two eight-week cycles, so 16 weeks out, no more chickens in there till spring. Those can be put over a garden bed and covered with a clear plastic tarp, and they become mini greenhouses. You could function stack that way, too. You know, start thinking about if you have a standard-sized bed, maybe uh, a chicken tractor that's the width of one bed is too narrow, but building that chicken tractor so it could just go over two beds, hey, All of a sudden, instant greenhouse at the time of year when you're not using the chicken tractor. That's if you're running meat birds. If you're running, you know, layers in a tractor or paddock situation, you may need that item through the winter. But for a lot of people running a meat cycle, one or two chicken tractors, you have all your meat birds through, you know, your spring or summer or early fall, and it double, you know, purposes as a greenhouse. The 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 season extension that is offered by the small greenhouse approach is probably the best that there is. I've seen it done a lot of ways. I saw one guy, this is what he did. He just built a frame that fit inside his bed, right? So his beds were about four feet uh, wide, 48 inches. He had an old storm door that was 36 inches wide, all right? So he built a frame that you could just attach the old storm door to. He took the, thir the 36-inch wide, you know, six-foot-long frame and put it in his 4 by 8 raised bed. Boom, that created a planting area. He planted inside of there, and when it was cold, he prop or when it was getting too warm, he propped the door open. When it was cold, he took the prop out and let the door stay closed. He was harvesting spinach in January in New York. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. And, you know, on really cold nights... He would take two milk jugs, fill them with hot water, open the door, stick them inside there, close the door, and just put a little bit more thermal mass in there. Or, you know, the other thing you could do is paint a couple milk jugs, four or five milk jugs black, fill them with water, and leave them in there during the day to warm up naturally from the, the heat of the day. You're not going to keep it toasty warm in there overnight. You, In these types of situations, you need to be planting winter-hardy plants 
But what you're doing isn't so much ensuring their survival. In some ways you are, though, because they're not being crushed by snow or what have you. What you're really doing is, is going from a point where instead of just being lethargic and not growing, you're continuing to grow and produce through the winter. So it's probably the best way you can grow into the late fall, early winter, even mid-winter for a lot of folks. Uh, there's a lot of tricks you can do with this as you move into winter, too. Like you can set up something like I just described with an old storm door. You'll probably find it at a junkyard or a habitat store, something like that, repurposed. And, you know, build yourself a compost pile and then put that in the center and plant on each side of the compost pile. Let the residual warmth of the composting action keep that area warm. It's basically, or, you know, another way to do that is the same type of thing. Dig a deep pit below it. Put a layer of, of manure, composting manure down there, and then put your plants on top of that. That's a hot frame. There's a lot of things you can do. I've seen it done this way. Take a bunch of old hay or straw bales, square ones. Build a square out of hay. So you've got a square. Plant in the center of the square, or the rectangle, so to speak, and take an old storm door or a piece of glass and put it over top of the hay bales. The hay bales are great insulators. There's a lot of warmth developed during the day, and it's protected at night. It's a good way to start seeds. So you don't have to spend a lot of money. You don't have to put in you know, a $10,000 permanent heated greenhouse to grow into the late season, into the cold season. Um, you can probably go on Craigslist and find cheap to free old fish tanks and just you know keep putting them wherever you need them. You can frame out you know, using two-by-fours, something big enough to fit over a, a four-by-eight or three-foot-by-eight-foot bed and just staple freaking plastic to it and just make some way that, you know, the ends can be opened or something like that easily. Two people pick it up, put it over the bed. Done. You know, the, the smart way to do that is make it so the whole lid opens so you can get in a harvest. But, I mean, you can do that with cheap lumber, You can do that with PVC pipe. Uh, you can do it with just about anything. You don't have to spend a ton of money to be able to produce food into the winter. And the, 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 the truth is, a lot of our crops taste better grown in cold weather. Especially things like greens, lettuces, root vegetables. These all taste better grown in the cool. Even if you live in a climate where you can get them to grow in your hot season, they just taste better in cool seasons. Anyway, hope you enjoyed today's show. Hope you're looking forward to fall. I know it's hard to do when it's 100 plus degrees out, but it's coming. Tick, tick, tick. Time marches on. Either you're working on your self-sufficiency and independence, or you are on a sliding scale and you're moving away from it. If you're active, you're moving towards it. If you're static, you're not static. Liberty is getting away from you. Feeding yourself, feeding your family, high-quality nutrition food is one of the greatest ways to build self-sufficiency and self-reliance into your life. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way 
Show you.